My name is Greg. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and I'm actually the campus pastor for our East Abbotsford campus. And uh, earlier this week, uh, my family, uh, my two kids and my wife and myself actually went with my side of the family. So my two sisters, their husbands, their kids, and my parents, we all spent some time at a little lake in the Okanagan. Uh, and you might be thinking to yourself, man, he's so brave bringing two little kids camping. Um, but it, I wasn't, we were in a hotel. So <laughs> I wasn't brave. Uh, I was smart is what I was. Uh, we didn't really know how my littlest uh, child would respond to the time at the lake. She's 17 months old now. Her name's Emily, and uh, she, she loved it, actually. She was just right in there in the sand, and she was making the castles, and she was getting little water things filled to get her hands with the sand off so she didn't have to feel the sand on her hand. She was going in and out of the water. She was playing on the floaties, the whole deal. She was loving it. At one point, she was just overcome with the whole experience that she just ran to me and just gripped her little arms around my neck and was just so grateful. I tell you that story because I, I think we've been designed to respond with gratefulness when good things are done for us. It's true of little 17-month-old girls when they're at the beach, but it's also true of God's people with their heavenly Father. We're spending our summer looking at various psalms, uh, and this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 100. It's a, it's a call to worship. It's a call to God's people to respond to God's goodness with giving grateful praise. So here's what the psalm says. Psalm 100, verse 1. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It's he who made us, and we're his. We're his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. This morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 100, and Psalm 100 is basically about uh, compelling people or urging people, God's people, towards corporate worship. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage. We're going to look at it in three ways. First, we're going to see the motivating truth that this passage provides for our corporate worship. Secondly, we're going to see that we should enter together. And thirdly, we'll see that we should enter with. So a motivating truth, enter together, and third, enter with. First, let's look at the motivating truth uh, th this short little psalm was just riddled with commands, with, with imperatives, with things we need to be doing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the psalm again. It's nice and short. We can do it again. And on the screen, it's going to have little indicator marks for what words are actual commands to God's people to do. Okay, so here's the psalm with the instructions or the, the imperatives, the commands highlighted for us. Verse 1, shout. For joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It's he who made us. We're his. We're his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise him. It's a, it's a series of commands that the psalmist is giving to God's people. These are all the things that we should be doing. Why should we be doing them? Well, verse 5, the psalmist provides the motivating truth for the commands that he provides. Verse 5 says, For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. See, it's God's goodness characterized by his enduring love for his people that motivates us 
to follow the commands of Scripture. More particularly, it's God's goodness as characterized by his enduring love that motivates our corporate worship when we're together. See, the enduring love of God had a context for the psalmist. So the, the psalms, all the Bible, is written by a particular person at a particular time in history to a particular people. It's not just a book of fairy tales and fables and cool songs. It's actually written by people for people in a place and time. So, so what were the evidences of God's enduring love to the psalmist and the people that he's writing to? Well, primarily the story of the people of God up until this point was that the people of Israel began not actually as a, as a people, as a nation. They began as uh, slaves, as people who were oppressed with no national identity, with no freedoms. They were under the, the heavy hand of their Egyptian oppressors. Now, God had made a promise to their ancestor to say that I was gonna make, I'm going to make you into a people who are going to bless the world, but they were living under the oppression, and they call out to the God who said he would deliver and form a people out of their ancestor, and they say, you, you have to remove us from this slavery, and God, in an act of, of love and mercy, removes these people from their oppressor, and he makes them his people. And he gives them a land to be in. Those were the evidences of God's enduring love. The fact that he rescued them from slavery and he made them his own. The story is actually very similar for those of us who follow Jesus. The narrative, the scope of the narrative, the framework is very similar. There's just some different details. See, the, the reality is, is that every single one of us is born into a state of slavery to sin. We're born into a state of enslavement against the God who is there, and we actually are our own desire for our will to be done and not God's will to be done enslaves us. But God wasn't content to leave us in our slavery. Instead, he decided to send a deliverer to come and remove us so that he could form us into his people like the sheep of his pasture. And he promised to give us an eternal land where he will be our God and we will be his people. Those are the evidences of God's enduring love to us. Here's, here's the point of all of that. The, the motivation that's provided by the psalmist for the corporate worship is the goodness of God demonstrated by his enduring love. That's why we worship. Uh, you know as well as I do that we're in the, the season of enduring love events. We call them weddings. Uh, Depending on your, your life stage, you're either going to like 10 or none. I don't know what it is, but it's always feast or famine with weddings, right? We just all need to work out a deal among friends who are all getting married at the same time. Like, no one gets each other gifts, right? I, I think that's fair, but I, it's not catching on yet. So, so weddings are these moments. They're these events where enduring love for one another is being professed. Actually, just yesterday, I had the privilege of officiating a, a wedding of a couple from uh, the East for campus. And officiating weddings are always a bit of a hit to my pride because I have to put on my, like, my suit, my one suit, and the dress shirt I wear under that suit, and the top button just, I don't know, it doesn't go on as easy as it used to. So I'm going into these weddings thinking to myself, I should like run or something, I don't know. <laughs> but weddings are amazing events where enduring love is being professed. But if, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, the best part of weddings isn't actually the celebration of the bride and groom. 
The best part of a wedding for a believer is what this moment is actually pointing forward to. See, what I mean by that is that the the scriptures use the image of husband and wife and weddings as an image for God's love with his people. Ephesians 5 is is a... portion of scripture written by the Apostle Paul to a group of people in a a place called Ephesus. And in this part of the the book of Ephesus, he's, he's talking about marriage and how husbands and wives should relate to one another. And in the middle of these instructions about how relationships and marriage should work among Christians, he writes these words. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. See, Paul's in the midst of giving instructions to Christian husbands and wives about what a flourishing marriage should look like, but he can't help himself in the middle of the instructions to say, but you do know this is a picture of the gospel, right? Of a husband and a wife coming together. This is a picture of the great cosmic love story that's taking place between Christ and his people. See, the best part of Christian weddings isn't the enduring love that's being professed between a groom and a bride. The great part of a Christian wedding or weddings that Christians attend is it's a picture of our future with our God. Where we will be fully, finally, eternally with him. He will be ours. We will be his. The, the scriptures kind of mix some of the metaphors when it comes to uh, God's love for us and weddings and marriages. Revelation 19 uh, talks about uh, our, our future with uh, God as a, like a wedding reception, right? The, it, it's called the, the marriage supper of the lamb or the wedding supper of the lamb. And actually the, the author of Revelation 19 actually uses the words, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. You know, when you get the invitation to go to the wedding this summer and it says RSVP by, and you don't RSVP by that date, right? You're like, I'm going to wait for them to contact me. All I know is that the RSVP date is the date they text me to say, are you coming to the wedding, right? I don't think I'm the only one who does that. Uh, You get the invitation and and you, you decide you're going to go and then there's the moment where you show up to the wedding reception and you have that moment of angst and anxiety because you have to figure out who am I going to sit with for the next four hours of my life, right? And you go up to the little list and you see the table numbers and you're at one of the highest numbered tables and you look at the list of people, you don't know anybody. This happens to me all the time because when I get invited to weddings, they're like, I have a crazy uncle who doesn't know Jesus and Greg's a pastor. So (laughs) this is happening. You show up and you see your name on on the list. See, what, what the author of Revelation 19 is saying is, You are blessed if at the great day yet to come, you come into the great feast and you see your name on that list. Because we know that in and of ourselves, our our own goodness, our own ability to follow God, we should have nothing to do with the wedding reception. At best, they should let us in the dish pit so we could see the party going on. But actually, if you come to faith in Christ, if, if you hear the good news of what Jesus has done for you in his life and in his death and his resurrection to save you from your enslavement to sin and bring you into the people of God, you will show up on that day and see your name at the head table. Blessed are those 
who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. There's a party coming. It's not actually just the, the wedding ceremony that's a picture of our future. It's actually the dance after. This is why we ha- it's a good thing for Christians to celebrate. It's a, good, it's a good thing for us to fast and mourn. It's a good thing for us to party hard because it's a sign of the future yet to come. Of a joyous time with our Lord where he will be our God. We will be his people. There's a party. There's a wedding coming. Are you invited? Have you, have you accepted the invitation to come? The RSVP is just hanging out on your fridge. Today's the day of salvation. You should go to the wedding. That's the motivating truth for why we do what the scriptures command us to do, is that God has demonstrated his enduring love for us, and one day we will fully, finally, eternally be his people, and he will be our God. The rest of the psalm actually has all kinds of different commands. We're just going to focus on one of the verses, the command that's listed there. We're going to look at it in two different ways. So first, we're going to see how the Psalm 100 commands God's people to enter together. Verse 4 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Uh, If you grew up in Sunday school like I did, uh, that line, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, might have just triggered a Sunday school memory for you. Right? He has made me glad. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. Uh, some of you are nodding. I will enter his courts with praise. I will say this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. And then there's clapping parts. It's a great time. <laughs> when I'm reading this passage this week, I read that line, will enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. And I start thinking to myself of that Sunday school song, but what's interesting about the Sunday school version is that it's all me-based, right? He has made me glad. I will enter his courts. I will enter his gates. It's, it's very me-focused, but actually the way that this reads is actually as a, a plural. It's, it's you all should enter his gates. You all should enter his courts. It's, a, it's, it's like the psalmist is Texan here, right? All y'all. All y'all should enter his gates. All y'all should enter the courts. It's, it's a plural command. It's a command to, to a group. It's, it's for all of us, not just individuals. It's a corporate thing. See, the psalmist is commanding all of us to enter his gates and his courts. Now, that, that language of, of gates and courts is uh, it's tabernacle temple language, which, depending on your familiarity with Christianity, those might be completely foreign concepts to you or just kind of like, I think I've heard those words, but I don't really know what they mean. Well, essentially, what the, the tabernacle was a, was a non-permanent structure where the people of God built a, a place where God himself would dwell in this area called the Holy of Holies that you would only be able to enter into, only the, the high priest, only the, the top priest in the people of Israel was able to go into the Holy of Holies only after a cleansing ceremony of his sin because in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, the, the place in which the Ten Commandments were actually stored. And the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies was uh, the, the footstool of God himself. So inside the Holy of Holies was God's very presence. To just walk into the Holy of Holies without actually being cleansed of your sin and having the right things done to you, you would actually die on the spot because of the holiness of God. And then out from the Holy of Holies, there was a separate area. And then out from that separate area was this big area called the courts. And the courts was a loud 
stinky, smoky area because this is where all the people would come in with their grain sacrifices, their, their, their burnt sacrifices, all the different things that they brought as an act of worship took place in the courts. It was a bustling, hustling, loud, stinky, smelly, hot kind of place, the courts. And then the gates would be the way you would get in. The, the temple that the Israelites built was like the tabernacle, but just permanent, made of stone. So we're not totally clear when Psalm 100 was, was written. Is this being, is, are the gates and courts referring to the tabernacle, the non-permanent structure? Is it referring to the temple, the, you know, the stone-built structure? Either way, what the psalmist is saying is we need to be entering into the house of the Lord together. We all need to enter. This is the place where God's presence is. This is the place where we actually worship the living God together. You should enter his courts, all of y'all. The point the psalmist is making is that we should be coming together in corporate worship. Or in other words, the psalmist here is, is affirming to us the goodness of gathering together for the sake of worshiping the God who has saved us. Uh, there's a book in the New Testament called the, the Book of Hebrews, and in the Book of Hebrews, the author is trying to engage with uh, Jewish people who at one point came to faith in Jesus, but because of the hardships associated with it, were thinking about not following him anymore. And at one point in the letter, the author of the Book of Hebrews is making a direct connection between what the temple was and who Jesus is. The author's saying, look, the, the temple was the place where, where God's very presence was. Jesus is God himself. That the temple was the place where the sacrifices for our sins were made so we could have a restored relationship with God. Jesus himself is that sacrifice for us. He's, he's making the connections between what the point of the temple was and what the point of the person of Jesus of Nazareth was. And then in verse or chapter 10, he writes these words, verse 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that divided the holy of holies from the rest of the temple. That is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, so Jesus isn't just God, he's the priest who gets us to God. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. The, the author of Hebrews is saying, look, if my, my Jewish friends don't give up on Jesus to go back to the temple because Jesus is the point of the temple. So keep following him. So in light of that, what now does the author of Hebrews say? Verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, the author of Hebrews is saying, in light of what Jesus has done for us in being the fulfillment and completion of the purposes of the temple, we should commit ourselves to worshiping God together. Rather than giving up on the habit of worshiping together, we should continue on and press forward. So the question for us is, is gathering with other Christians weekly a priority for us? Or do we have a habit of giving it up? Now look, I'm self-aware that I'm currently speaking to a group of people in a room where we've gathered together for worship, okay? Okay. 
So in this way, I'm kind of preaching to the choir, right? But I'm also self-aware that uh, our sermons go on a podcast that people listen to. And I'm aware that oftentimes we will treat podcasts like our church for the week. So if you're listening to the podcast, I used air quotes for church, okay? We think to ourselves, I don't need to go and worship with other people. I have a podcast. I have Spotify. I can do it on my own, and I can do it out in creation. I can do it with just my family. I I don't need to gather with other believers. I'll, I'll, I'll put it off, and we put it off for all kinds of good reasons, right? You're really busy during the year. And you have very little time to see your family, and so you decide to go up to a cabin for for months on end in summer, and instead of finding a local body of believers in that area where your cabin is, you decide, no, for the summer months, I'm just going to listen to a podcast. I'll just give it up. It's not a big deal. But then there's also, you know, your kids' soccer games and their baseball games and their hockey games, and those are on often on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings, and that's okay. Well, we'll still follow along with the sermons and, and we'll, we'll still listen to Spotify and, and actually run for water happens every year and that's a really good opportunity for us to do something good, right? So instead of go to church that morning, I'll just go to run for water because we should be light of the world and we should go and help people and we should do good to all, all people and this is a really good opportunity so why don't we just do run for water instead of go to church? It's, it's actually funny, the run for water weekend, we as staff just know that that, number, that weekend our numbers will plummet in attendance. See, the question isn't, can I ever miss church without being this sinner beyond, redeem, beyond being redeemed? No, the question is, is do we have a habit of neglecting to gather with other Christians? Have we worked into our routine and the way we view our Christian life that actually gathering together with other people, this is an optional part? Or do we see it as essential? Do we actually book our travel plans around gathering with other Christians? Do we book our vacations around being able to gather with other Christians? How how do we spend our time when we have opportunities to gather with other believers? Do we take those opportunities or are we in the habit of neglecting to meet with one another? Psalm 100 is actually commanding God's people to enter his courts together. There's a corporate nature to our worship. I, I love being able to, to look out and see when people are coming to church. Right? At the East Abster campus, I'll often stand at the front doors where people will walk through, and, and we, I can see people walking from the parking lot for a distance. And one of the benefits of the East Abbey campus for, as a campus pastor is there's like one entrance. Right down the road, there's like 87 entrances that you can enter into. And so it's impossible for us to be at every single one. But at East Abbey, I can see when people are entering. And I love seeing elderly people with walkers because every single step is a commitment to worshiping with the people of God. It's a cost to them to gather together with others. I love seeing young families come in late with a diaper bag on and with kids screaming and the parents are screaming and they're just trying to make it to church 10 minutes late if they can because they are committed to worshiping with other Christians. So the question for us is, are we in the habit of giving up meeting with other Christians at church? Psalm 100 is actually commanding us that in light of God's enduring love in Jesus, we should all be entering together. Finally, we should be entering with. We should note here in Psalm 100 in verse 4 that the psalmist doesn't just command us to gather together. He says to enter with. Verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Now, 
for us to understand what's being actually, what the image being evoked in the first readers would be is we have to kind of go back to the historical context. So the people of God are being called to come to the temple or the tabernacle to worship God, right? To come together. Well, how would that worship have looked? Well, they would have come with their hands full of the sacrifices they were going to bring that morning, that day. In other words, the call to the people of God to say, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, is basically saying, bring your grain, bring your animals for the burnt offerings, and come and worship the Lord together. The image is of people coming with something in their hands rather than coming to church empty-handed. Which I think is really intriguing because I think for the majority of us, we treat church as an event that we consume, We come empty-handed, expecting to be filled. Rather than coming with something to give for the purpose of contributing to the whole. Let let me put it like this. Uh, If you want to watch football, or if you want to be involved with the football game, you have two options. One is you can participate as an observer. You can be in the stands or at home with your bowl of popcorn, Popcorn's cheaper at home, but you could, either way, you can be mowing on the popcorn, watching the action take place, or you can strap on some pads in your jersey and get some grass stains as you sacrifice yourself for the team. The call of the local church is to put the popcorn down and get some grass stains. It's not to be an observer only, it's to be a contributor to what's going on. We are entering his courts with praise. We're not coming empty-handed. We're coming prepared to worship our Lord. So what does it actually look like? What what does the withness of our worship look like? little side note, when I was trying to figure out what do I call my points, I wanted to call this point, can I get a withness? But I didn't. Your response makes me feel like I should have, though. So if I preach this one in six years, stay tuned for that. What does it look like to have a withness in our worship, to not come empty-handed? Well, part of it is, is a preparation. Are, are we coming to church actually prepared to be engaged in what's taking place? So uh, normally, we have our sermon series go through books of the Bible. We'll, we'll go through Philemon or Ruth or Romans and And people will kind of have an idea of what we're going to be talking about next week on the basis of what we talked about this week, right? Like the detectives in our midst can be like, I bet they're going to talk about this passage next. And so you can read it ahead of time. It was interesting. Once we started the sermon series in our our, our summer in the Psalms, one of the pieces of feedback we heard from a bunch of people was, we don't like not knowing what Psalm is being preached next week because we can't prepare ourselves to hear it preached. Isn't that a great point? The challenge was people were saying, look, I, I, I would love to know what's coming up on Sunday because I want to be able to read it and prepare my heart to hear what God has to say through his word for us that day. There, there's a preparation that's taking place as people are coming to gather and to worship God. I see people coming into to church early. You're, you're coming in, you're sitting down, you're praying. Your life stage allows you that kind of buffer time to, to sit in silence before church. And some of your life stage doesn't permit you that time to sit in silence because the kids are screaming and you're 10 minutes late. But 
But even in that stage, we can prepare ourselves for being active contributors to the worship service by even just coming in with the screaming kid on our hip, making a commitment inside our head that if the Lord is kind to me and they stay in the nursery, I'm at least going to commit to singing the songs. Like when the songs are playing, I might not love the songs, I might think the bass is too loud, I might not like the way that Andrew does it, but, but I am coming not as a consumer to receive, I'm coming as a participant to give. So I'm going to sing songs to the Lord. I'm adopting a mindset, not just of a consumer, but of a contributor. I'm going to enter his courts with. There's a withness to it. Being a contributor to the church doesn't just look like being prepared to participate. It, it also can look like us being sacrificial for the sake of others being able to participate. Right, serving of our, of our time. Every campus has stories of people who are giving up hours of their time for the sake of different parts of our, of our gatherings to take place. We have people who are willing to commit a few evenings a week to practice the songs that we may or may not like so that we can all sing together. We have people throughout the year at our Downs Road campus who come and they, they commit to coming early on Saturday night so they can make a meal so people have something to eat before the service. We have people who come really early on Sunday mornings to help make the brunches and the snacks so that we can have something after the services here. We have people in the mission campus who have snot on their shoulders from your kid who won't stop crying. We, we have all kinds of people serving in all kinds of ways to give us the opportunity to have just a moment to think about God and his word. In our life, where every moment of our day, we are being inundated with thoughts and ideas from the culture and thoughts and ideas from within our own heart. We, we have a minute in church services to think about God and what he's doing in the world through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's only able to take place because other people have come to church with something to give, namely their time. So look, we as, as pastors and leaders and people who are committed to the mission of, of this church, we, we just want to compel you. Look, if you have been sitting and eating popcorn for a really long time, we need you to get on the field. We need you to get some grass stains on that, that jersey. I, I know that there, there are good reasons and there are seasons of our lives where we just need the back row. We just need a timeout. We just need a break because of what's going on around us. But I also know that for a lot of us, that just becomes a habit. That once that hard season's over, we don't actually do the hard work of strapping on the pads, throwing on the jersey, and getting grass stains on for the sake of others being able to worship God. We don't come with things ready to give. We come empty-handed asking everyone else to fill us. But the local church isn't just watching with popcorn in our hands. The local church is strapping on the pads, getting on the field, and serving one another so that we can all worship our Lord. So the question is, is do you still have popcorn in your hand? Or is there a witness to your worship? You see, just like a little girl who thanks her dad for taking her to the lake, I think we've been designed to give grateful praise to the God who showed his enduring love to us. And this psalm tells us that a chief way that we give our grateful praise is a commitment to gathering to worship with other Christians, and it's a commitment to having a witness with our worship. So let's pray. Father, you're good. Your word is good. You've demonstrated your goodness mostly to us through your son, Jesus Christ who through his work, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, we have the opportunity 
to have a right relationship with you, not just now, but eternally so. We know there's a wedding coming. We know there's a party coming that you are, enter, you are inviting us to enter into. Lord, I pray that that truth would cement deeply into our hearts. And that out of the overflow of our hearts, we would exude with grateful praise for who you are. That we wouldn't just come empty-handed, but we would come ready to give because you are worthy of our praise. We would come ready to serve because others need the opportunity to give you the praise. So Lord, we love you, we praise you, we pray all these things for your fame and in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.